Hi there. Welcome. My name is Josh. Just a couple of announcements. On Monday through Fridays, Kathy at 8 in the morning teaches her daily pause meditation, and the link is in the info on Dharma Punks with an XNYC. Next in person, New Year's Day. So that'll be in person. And we'll have an announcement as per the time and the way to register for that. And it should be a really lovely intention-setting Buddhist gathering. So if you're in New York, stop by. If you have Instagram, I post everything there. There's the uh, Dharma Punks with an XNYC Instagram page, and there's also my Instagram, and there's also stuff on Facebook. So everything I do is entirely supported by donation. I don't charge for anything. So the Venmo is Dharma Punks NYC, and the PayPal and Patreon info is on the website. So thanks for that. Today, we are talking about acceptance versus change in relationships. It's not the primary kind of work I do in counseling. Most of the time it's with individuals, but I do work with couples, couples counseling. It's easy to fall under the misconception that individuals act deliberately in accordance with conscious decisions. When we see other people in our life, it seem, it's easy to believe that they're acting in ways they've devised consciously. On the other hand, when we do something and make a mistake, it's simply because we were stressed. That's the fundamental attribution error misconception that human beings have, which is that other people choose the way they act. But our behaviors are governed by neural pathways that are instilled in our brains by long-forgotten antecedent events that go back over a wide stretch of time. Just to look at the model, Robert Sapolsky, whose work I highly recommend, a behavioral psychologist, he notes that before every action, there are so many different unseen events that influence how we act, and that almost none of them are conscious. There's the environmental triggers that we unconsciously detect, whether people look menacing or friendly, or whether we feel cornered. And this can activate our autonomic nervous systems to states of freeze, mobilization, or safety. And then there's the hormones are endocrine system exposed our t ourselves to that day and over the recent months have you been under a lot of work stress or financial stress that completely changes the way we act as opposed to when someone is um in a time where they're feeling relatively rewarded by their activities vastly significant are the un resolved emotional events from previous relationships. If someone was cheated on in the past or abandoned, they'll carry expectations that all their subsequent partners will act in the same way. And this will leave them prone to sudden bursts of anger, jealousy, suspicion. Then, of course, how well we bonded in our, with our peers in our adolescence can lead to a sense of ease or guardedness in new relationships. It's been shown that childhood socioeconomic status predicts how well our frontal cortex can inhibit our midbrains. So some people are set up to be more prone to addiction, more prone to not being able to postpone um, uh, rewards. Some people are more prone to jump to conclusions rather than listen. And then, of course, one of the most influential events happened all the way back in our childhood, the attachment patterns, which etched into our or orbital frontal 
beliefs that shape our global expectations about how other people will treat us. And then we could go back even further to before we were born, how much cortisol are we were exposed to in our fetal life. And also, even well before we were born, the cultures that our ancestors farmed or hunted in, the millions of years of evolution that wired traits into our brains. So you add all of it up and... There's very little room for the belief that people act consciously in accordance with how they think. Uh, personality is an emergent process that's conditioned by a complex intersections of the past with the present. And what can seem like people are consciously choosing how to act are, in fact, the overdetermined outcomes of these countless influences I just listed that are totally outside of our control. They work on us, but we're not aware of them. There's an old metaphor in Buddhism that's very instructive. There's this old teaching where a monk is lying in a rowboat trying to get uh, some rest after all of his chores, and he's floating there in the river, just about to, uh, in his meditation, become really peaceful. And then someone in another rowboat rams into him, and he gets really angry and lifts himself out of the rowboat and is ready to shout at the other pilot of the other rowboat. And then he sees that that rowboat is empty, there's no one in it. And that is a metaphor that other people are like, in many ways, empty rowboats drifting, banging into us, but that their behaviors are not the product as much of free will or conscious decisions as we, in our, uh, the common delusion leads us to conclude. So the idea that we can change other people by pleading, by using logic, by requests, by demands, by ultimatums is sadly a fallacy. Now, that's not saying that change doesn't happen in relationship, but the way we try to go about change almost invariably simply causes fracturing and fraying partnerships rather than accomplishing any kind of positive outcome. In the initial stages of a connection with another person, our behaviors don't reflect how we act in the long term. And this is important to understand, that we have different all human beings have different types of behaviors. For example, I act uh, in a different way when I'm counseling someone to when I'm with my partner or when I'm with my friends or when I'm uh, teaching. They're all different, what we could call suites of behavior. There's no one single global behavior as the Buddha in his teachings on Chaitasikas taught. And as we know today from clinical psychology, I'll actually tell you why we have different suites of behavior. So in the initial stages of meeting someone, we're governed by what's called impression management. We engage in fawning behaviors or what some psychologists call reaction formation. It's a defense mechanism in which we really um, curate everything we say and do in ways that we're trying to inhibit uh, our true feelings. And we're just trying to be liked by performing imitations of other people that we think are likable, but they're not authentic they're not spontaneous. They don't represent the way that we act 
in long-term relationships. We'll laugh more. We'll appear more interested in topics we actually find boring. We'll go to, in the beginning of dating, we'll go to events we don't normally attend. We will appear unfazed or, and we won't be as disappointed as we will become later on in the relationship. But over time, our behavioral paradigms shift. The tolerant, exploratory, uh, compromising behaviors can give way to people who become unwilling to agree for the sake of harmony, who lose patience so much quicker than they did at the beginning, who uh, suspect the worst, who resist trying new activities. And I'm bringing all this up because this shift creates the sense that the other person has changed by choice, that they've somehow fooled us, that that they've misled us. But that's not the case. And this is so vitally important to understand that the behaviors we have when we are new at work, when we're new in a relationship, when we're new in an interpersonal dynamic, do not represent the paradigm of behaviors that we uh, resolve to over the long term in a relationship. The early behaviors are far more inauthentic and don't, they are performances, um, but they're performances that are also initiated unconsciously. We just go into this wanting people to like us when we're new at a job or when we're going on a date or when we're meeting a new group of friends or when, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We just, it initiates impression management. But over time, as we've gotten to know people, the behavioral uh, traits shift to the ways we are in long-term relationships. It's not that we're being misled or that we're misleading people. It's simply a natural shift in behavior that all people do. And it's all guided by uh, unconscious processes. So for example, uh, anxious people very often tell me at the beginning of the relationship, they've met somebody who's avoidant, but the avoidant at the beginning was appreciative and wanted to spend as much time with them as possible and love bombed them. And, but then once they have sex or have intimacy, then the avoided becomes distant and dismissive and becomes difficult to, to even pin down. And it might seem to the anxious person, it almost invariably does like the avoidant was tricking them or misleading them. They weren't. They're simply doing what all people do when they're anxious. When you're anxious early on in an interpersonal dynamic, we act in ways that are performative. But then over time, when intimacy and some kind of uh, other emotional events occur, then the uh, anxious performative behaviors give way to another set of behaviors. Some people become then um, distance seeking. Other people at the beginning, anxious people appear very calm and relaxed, but then over time they become anxious and suspicious and, and so forth. And we see this different types of behaviors all the way back in childhood. Infants have completely different behaviors depending on the caregiving environment they happen to be in. When a child feels seen by their caregiver, when their, their parent is relaxed and attentive, then the child will uh, be happy. It'll confidently explore the environment. It will play with the parent. It'll interact with strangers. But if the child is with a parent that's stressed out or only partially attentive, the child's behavior shift entirely to a different set of traits. They'll cling. They won't explore the territory around them. They won't interact with strangers and they won't play. They'll simply 
cling to the parent anxiously. And if the child is scared of the parent, they'll hide. If the parent's angry at that moment, they'll hide, they'll deny, they'll fawn, and so forth. So it's not like the child is um, consciously changing their behavioral traits. It's simply the environment changes the traits that they act on. It even changes, um, uh, not Peter Finagi, uh, Stephen Porges, Porges shows uh, that the neurologist Stephen Porges that depending upon the interpersonal environment, literally different regions of the brain operate. And so they create different behaviors. We all have different personas or what the Buddha called Chaitasikas, how we act at work versus friendship versus dating is always different. So the demand change is fruitless. It's a delusional waste of time. The expectation that maybe this person will become more pleasant, more available, will become more uh open to new experiences or will make healthier choices with how they eat or whatever it only adds conflict people's behaviors are governed by a host of events from the past uh, and uh, influences of dopamine and cortisol wired into the brain through the course of evolution and the nature of the relationship itself will change what behaviors they become capable of. And we make demands or requests that someone will change. They'll receive these requests as requests as criticism and attack. And what others will invariably do is defend by calling attention to our issues. Or the other approach they'll take is they'll issue an easy reassurance. Oh, it won't happen again. I won't do that again. But all that will happen is those behaviors will be suppressed for a short period, as long as the person can. Then they'll go back to their natural traits, their natural behavioral suites, and they'll go back to eating junk food, not cleaning up after themselves, not being available, not being attentive, staying on their phone, whatever. All the things that we were trying to address, they'll return to. Human behaviors are <clears throat> deeply woven and interconnected. They're not separable items in a grocery cart we can remove. In fact, the annoying traits in a friend of yours, a family members of yours, a partner of yours are inextricably connected to the endearing traits. So someone who's picky about their food and that drives you crazy, on the other hand, could be excellent at self-care. Whereas someone who's not picky about what they eat and easy to please could be terrible with self-care. And those attributes are wired together. They share neural links neural circuits. Someone who seeks time to themselves, uh, and that drives us crazy because they're not available, these people might require less maintenance. On the other hand, people who are emotionally available might constantly be seeking reassurance, and that might be something that we uh, struggle with. People who are constantly proselytizing or didactic about their beliefs might offer stimulating conversations. So this idea that we can simply pick and choose a behavior that we don't like, and that we could simply remove it from someone, and that that behavior is not like, uh, it's like a thread that's connected to the entire fabric, the entire fabric of their, who they are will unravel if, even if you could change it, which you can't. <laughs> so the idea that we can pick and choose the behaviors of other people that we don't like, even if we could somehow remove them, then in a whole host of traits we did like and make them actually enjoyable to us would disappear. 
That others will not change in the ways we want is painful. As infants, we survived at first by getting our needs met no matter what it took. Infants cannot afford to let their parents um, become inattentive, uh, become uh, unavailable. So infants will create tantrums and ratchet up emotional displays will become disconsolate until they get the sense they're seen in the eye of the other. And we carry with us these this sense that in life, if we complain, request, demand, uh, urge, beg, that eventually people will see our needs and will change who they are. But it's at this, when we get to that place, it's worth reflecting that our own emotional behaviors continue despite our knowing better and besides, despite our trying to get rid of certain of our behaviors. Um, I still have a tendency to over-order when I'm hungry. I do it. I know I do it. But if I get hungry and I'll go to the store or I'll go to a takeout food place or whatever, and I'll order more than I need. I let the hunger just takes over very often. And despite numerous, (laughs) numerous assurances to myself, that I'm not going to overorder tonight. I will still give into it. I I gave up drinking 29 years ago, but before I did, when I was an active alcoholic, I drank for years, knew, knowing it was killing me. But I still drank. There were times when I was working at a job I really disliked, where every week to just keep my spirits up. I would go to the vintage clothing store and buy myself something that I didn't need. Not very Buddhist, but <clears throat> I just it just was an automatically ingrained behavior that I couldn't stop for a long time. Uh, there's people I know that are well aware that when they get nervous, they talk more and they really don't want to do it, they tell me. But then the moment they get nervous, they talk more. So if we can't change our own behaviors, even though we know that they're causing us suffering, how in the world do we expect that others will change their behaviors simply because they disappoint us? So there are mature strategies, though, that can indirectly lead to profound change in relationships, but they're not the ways that we generally go about seeking change or seeking other people to address certain behaviors. In fact, very often they'll seem like the exact opposite of what we want to do, and yet they are the only strategies that, in my experience, are effective. We know from the works of the giants in the field of couples therapy, and I'm talking about the big three or big four are Stan Tatkin, John Gottman, Sue Johnson of EFT. Stan Catton was of the PACT, B-A-C-T, and uh, Herval Hendricks of Imago Therapy. So these are the Gottman of the Gottman Institute. These are the four, you know, relationship uh, clinical psychologists that everyone refers to and are by far and away the highest regarded in studying couples dynamics and all of them show that relational dynamics improve for both individuals in a relationship the safer each person feels especially when they're having difficult conversations what does safety mean safety is not saying to someone hey you're safe Safety is focusing on all of the nonverbal cues that we send to other people. And for the, the, especially during those difficult interactions, 
where we need to connect on issues that are stressful, we focus on maintaining eye contact, nodding in agreement, appreciative expressions and tone. The primitive parts of our brain may be quick to identify threats and facial expressions and posture. So it's vital to approach discussions conveying a sense of openness. Any cues that we send of judgment, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling, these are the big ones from uh, Gottman, especially things like eye rolling, shifting attention away, removing eye contact, and expressions uh, of exasperation. Those are the absolute killers of safety. And those are the those are the types of events that always precedes the stressful, uh, conflictual interactions. People, before they hear what someone else says, their left hemisphere understands, they are most importantly, your right hemisphere, your amygdalas are picking up other people's nonverbal cues. And if you pick up a sign that they are disconnecting, stonewalling, judging, um, then no, doesn't matter what they say, you will not feel safe and you will start to become defensive and, and your emotions will ratchet up. Active listening is fundamental. Active limp listening is simpler than we think it is. It's a commitment to not think while another person is speaking, especially planning what we're going to say. It's about a commitment to really listen to the degree that when they finish speaking, we could repeat back almost not word by word, but repeat back every single point that they make, summarizing what they've said. And that is a very healthy practice. As our motivations are unconscious and directed by past experiences, um, when we stop deciding that our partner is simply acting the way they're acting because they've decided to act in ways we don't like, we can become interested and really begin to learn about their past experiences, their underlying emotional beliefs that preceded us. And we can really begin to get a, actually an accurate picture and when we get an actual picture of why people do the things they do, we suddenly become more empathetic and we create even more safety. And when people, as I noted at the beginning with children with their parents, when people feel safe and heard and not judged, over time, their behaviors change to the exact kind of behaviors we most deeply need. The safer people become in relationships, the more they become inclined to listen, to become compromising and interested in doing things they normally wouldn't, the more they become open to uh, exploring, the more that they become available. And so... It's not, it's not a fast process, but it's a, it's the process that works. One of the classic examples of this is the great psychologist Heinz Coat, who was the first psychologist that really came up with a treatment for narcissists. And narcissists are incredibly difficult people to work with in therapies. I'm sure you can imagine. And up until Kohut, all the therapists would try to uh, deal with narcissists by directly addressing their grandiose inflated sense of self and trying to right-size their view of who they were to pop the ego bubble 
that narcissists did to create a sense of importance. But Kohut showed that the only successful way to deal with narcissists and difficult people is by first making them feel safe and heard and listened to. And then over time, the grandiosity and the inflated attributes and the lying begins to fall away the more they see that they are important to the therapist. So his strategy, which worked, was the exact opposite of what came, what felt natural. It's also important, rather than trying to always set boundaries with other people, to set boundaries with ourselves. Those are by far and away the most effective boundaries. Rather than trying to change someone else's behavior, we don't put ourselves in the same situations expecting different results. So if you're in a relationship where uh, you're constantly cleaning up after someone, picking up their clothes or doing things that feel unfair, the most effective strategy, even though it's difficult, is to set a boundary with yourself not to do those things, to let the entire issue fail without judgment and to simply not engage in the behaviors, even if it means your place might for a while get uh, messy. If you are in a relationship where your partner is at times uh, in situations is abrasive, it's important to set a boundary with ourselves to put the work in to locate and connect with others who can meet our needs rather than going back and back trying to demand that someone changes in the way that we feel is fair or correct. It's essential in early new friendships and relationships and work environments to not fantasize ever about the future. These are the uh, forerunners of all the future resentments They obscure how other people act in various situations. And remember, an individual's resting traits only appear over the course of months. The person that you see at the beginning of a friendship, at the beginning of a work environment, when you're just getting to know someone, is not the person that you will be with over the duration. So if I had to summarize everything in this talk, the key is to remember that all behaviors are expressions of an underlying tapestry of unconscious processes. And accepting others is, uh, and that these people, by the way, are packages that were formed decades before we came into the picture, and that no action no matter how much it seems is about us, is really fundamentally about us. People's behaviors are wired by all of the previous traumas, their childhoods, their adolescence, uh, how much stress they're under. So if we take the personalizing out of this, why are they doing this to me? We step back and see that this is their behaviors when they don't feel safe, then we begin to have a way of proceeding that can actually develop or set the foundations where change for the better is possible. To do this work, we have to be capable of self-soothing, even when we're in triggering situations to learn how to down-regulate our nervous system, to learn how to pay attention even when someone is saying something we disagree with or we feel is not true, to learn how to soften our bellies, relax, and get curious. Because ultimately, the more we convey interest in someone, the more their behaviors over time will change for the better. So, We're now going to do a meditation about self-soothing in stressful interactions. So I hope 
that tonight's talk was of some interest. And now what I'd uh, suggest is finding a really comfortable seated position that feels good for you. And you don't have to stay on screen if you don't want. So finding a position either if you're seated that feels sustainable, if you're relaxed on a couch, that's fine. If you're lying on a bed, that's fine. Any position, just allow yourself to sink into your supports and try to find a position where you can give yourself permission to not have to shift a lot or change too much. If you do need to shift position, that's fine, but just try to get into a restful, easeful state. Sometimes progressive muscle relaxation is really helpful to set the right tone for a practice. So if you'd like, just start by squinching your toes and the your foot, make it into, you know, tightening the sole, the toes, the foot, and then release. And then tighten the muscles in the calf, calves. Really tighten them and then release. Tighten the muscles in the thighs. You're sitting, you'll feel your body slightly lift and then release. Clench the buttocks really taut and tight and then release and allow yourself to settle. Expand the belly as far out as you can so you get a really rotund Buddha belly and then release and allow the belly just to find a really soft position. Tighten the muscles in the chest and the back and just, just feel those muscles contract and then release. Tighten the muscles in both arms, including the forearms, all the way down the elbows, the hands, even make the fingers into fists, really squeeze and then relax. Clenching the jaw, pinching the face, tightening the muscles in the neck and then the forehead, and then release and let go. And if there's any set of muscles I... Didn't mention that you like to clench and release. Do that now. Throughout the week, we very often build up what's called action potential, low-level signals are sent from the motor regions of the brain to your muscles, preparing us to take action when we're in any kind of rush or difficult situation. But human beings generally don't follow through with an actual action. Very often, all that happens is the issue goes away, but the body stays in that clenched, tight, contracted, braced state. So the beauty of paired or progressive muscle relaxation is that it releases the stored tension and muscles which might have been around in your body for days or weeks. So find the breaths in your body, wherever the breath feels most comfortable. 
For some, it might be the tip of the nose. For some, it might be just feeling your abdomen inflating with the in-breath and releasing with the out. Or it might be energy moving from the belly up to the chest and then back down. (laughs) Or it could be Other regions where you subtly feel the breath movement. Sometimes the muscles around the neck I can feel subtly shifting with the breathing. And the basic instruction is to breathe in a way that soothes your body and soothes your mind. So for most of us, that will be a complete in-breath. And then a very long, relaxed exhalation where you're not pushing out the air. You're just slowly releasing it. And over time, we want our breath just to become subtle. We no longer feel ourselves in any way actively breathing. We're just sitting back and observing. But when your body starts breathing in, be a surprise. And when you breathe out, let the duration and length of the exhalation be in no way controlled, just withhold any tendency to push out the air. And see if this kind of breathing relaxes both the body and especially your mind. If it's working, your attention will slightly begin to settle. You'll notice the mind becomes more spacious, quieter, less intrusive thoughts. And if it's not having that desired outcome, that's fine. Just see if you can either explore breathing in a different way or you could recite a very simple phrase. May all beings... Find a path to happiness, easefulness, free of suffering. May all beings find a path that leads them to ease and comfort. May all beings find a path that allows them to live well without causing harm. Or visualize in your mind's eye a place that feels truly safe. So whether you're focusing on your breath or a phrase you're repeating in your mind or an image or even if you simply want to sit and listen to the sounds arising and pass around you. The practice is just to keep bringing your attention back to whatever the theme of your meditation is. Breathing, sounds, images, a phrase. And every time your thoughts pull you away, just note what thought felt really 
important. Promise it, you'll come back to it later. And just know the more you bring your attention back, the more you're wiring into your the circuits of your interior cingulate, the strength and the capability to detach from sticky thoughts. And after all, so many of our suffering and difficult times is caused by spiraling intrusive thoughts. So any meditation, even if you wind up drifting away, is successful. If you simply calmly bring your attention back again and again and again,
So if you like, you can practice by visualizing someone that you're presently struggling with, or at times there's been some level of difficulty doing whatever it is they do that we find exhausting or triggering. If in your mind's eye you can picture this scene, and bring the reflection that these actions are not aimed or about me. People's behavior is wired by events that occurred previous to our interactions with them. about their past intersecting with this present moment, their past expressing itself in the present. So imagine you could ask, what does this person feel? What's going on with them? If you could become interested and curious pay attention, softening the belly, keeping our breath long, relaxing our shoulders, creating a safe state in our bodies where we could be interested, not about trying to change, but just trying to understand what is the body state that allows us to be curious and interested, but not defensive or trying to change. How does that feel?
So whenever you're ready, take your time. And we're going to transition from the meditation to a time that remains, which is for questions and anything. So let me... uh, Return to my so thanking you for your practice and for listening.